Hello, health innovators. Welcome to another exciting episode of Health Tech Innovation 2024-25. I am your host, Arvind Serene, and today we have a true trailblazer in the field of health tech with us. Meet Dr. Matthew Hanover, a PhD holder in data science and over 10 years of experience in predictive modeling, NLP, and AI. His impactful journey, starting with overnight shifts at the youth shelter, led to a master's in public affairs and a PhD in research methods from Indiana University, Bloomington. As a senior data analyst at Medi Analytics and CEO of Hanover Consulting, Matthew influences cutting-edge healthcare analytics. Beyond his roles, Dr. Hanover boasts over 10 publications and 25 conference presentations on advanced analytics. Additionally, he mentors at Chegg and provides advisory support at Contemporary Technology University. Join us for a journey into the next frontier of health tech with the brilliant Dr. Matthew Hanover. Welcome, Dr. Matthew, and thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Very nice intro. Uh, excited to talk about all the amazing things that are happening. I mean, things are just changing so fast. Um, it, it It's really absolutely just blown the field up and 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 i think mostly in a good way but i'm happy to talk about you know some of the things that i think are going in the right direction and maybe some of the things i like to see go differently i love it that's exactly what we're here for and um no this is uh fantastic why don't we begin with getting a high level overview of your company Medi analytics and how is it driving innovation in the health tech industry yeah yeah so yeah, I'm I'm newer to Medi Analytics, so I'm going to give a little bit broader overview. But one of the reasons I was excited to join Medi is uh, we Medi is kind of the shorthand that we use internally. Medi Analytics is it solves a problem that I think we, particularly in data science, we don't like to look over, we don't like to address because it's not quite as sexy. They do a really good job at being able to take in lots of different data and to be able to clean it up and produce it in a way that's analyzable. So at the last at several of the last couple of companies I've been at, we data science has really struggled because companies can't decide, you know, where which data, where is it coming from, what does the data mean? Particularly like I've had, let me give you an example. I had a variable um in a data set it was called active. And I worked at a company where um oh, we had a we had a term active meant the patient was with us currently. It was a one in the and it had a one or a zero. So it's, it's fair to assume that if it's a one, the patient was active. I found out six months later that that assumption was wrong and that variable actually didn't mean anything. So these sorts of things, these problems where people don't understand what the data means and they can't and, and they can't agree on, even if they do understand what it means, they can't agree on what the KPIs are, what are the key performance indicators. This is what Medi does at its core. It's been doing it for 30 years it does an amazing job at taking your your claims data, your EHR data, bringing it in. It has already predefined KPIs for you. Obviously, you can get things customized, but it does all that cleaning, all that analyzing for you and puts it into these custom uh, built-in dashboards that give you the tools that you need. And at the core, that's what it does. And, it's, and it sets up data scientists like myself to be able to actually do the fun stuff, to be able to actually do the predictive modeling, the forecasting, which we've been doing, um, get starting to get into some of the, the the generative AI, generative BI, which I'll talk a little bit about as well. But at their core, they're really amazing at taking your data and turning it into something that you can actually actually, you know, take action on and understand what it actually means. 
Wow. No, that's fantastic. So essentially, it's a service that you provide to any any of the healthcare providers that you say, give us all your data and we'll make sure that it's properly tagged and organized in the right relationships and uh, just cleanse that data and also give them it give them the data back in a platform that allows them to slice and dice and make yep, sense and exactly. come up with some questions and run some scenarios so that is your platform as well yep yep like this we do have the platform where yeah not just the data cleaning but it also does the we have the um you know it's like tableau sort of thing um we you can uh, we have those the canned kind of reports KPIs for all the different. Um, if you bring it, we do a lot with claims data, so people bring our claims data, uh, revenue cycle. We have canned reports for that, so that folks can you know, like I said before, I, I've just seen companies just fall to their knees and not be able to get anything done because they can't agree on what this KPI is or they can't figure out how to clean it correctly so that we can all interpret it the same way. Um, and that's where uh, Medi Analytics does an amazing job. And again, you can't can't do data science unless you you understand what the variables are. If I don't know what those variables are, and that data is dirty, I mean, I, I can do data science, but it has no meaning. So they what they do is they set data scientists up, set data science programs up for success. Got it. Got it. No, that sounds fantastic, and sounds like uh, you know something that could be a lot of fun. Uh, so. For you, what motivates your passion for healthcare and how does your work in predictive modeling, NLP, and AI contribute to addressing the industry challenges on a, on a broader scale? Yeah. Uh, let me. So healthcare started with, as you mentioned, I worked um, when I was getting my master's, I worked the overnight shift at a youth shelter and I got to work directly with you know paid, like people that we would see in the healthcare system every day. They were, uh, you know, used to basically didn't have anywhere else to go. So I, I would help them out at night and do things like that and really had a passion for helping people with those kinds of areas. A lot of my expertise is um, or experience is in mental behavioral health. I was, I was working with a lot of that. And that's a lot of those kids had that kind of uh, concerns. Um, so I got a passion for healthcare and experience through that. And with with statistics and AI, I had um, I wasn't really interested in stats at all. I wanted to run my own nonprofit. I had a my first stats class. I had a professor tell me that I could predict the future with math. And I was like, why didn't someone tell me this in the seventh grade? I would have been so much more excited to do math. I could basically be a wizard in an oracle and try to predict things. Um, so that was really cool. Now, obviously, there's all kinds of assumptions and issues with that. But, you know, as someone becoming interested, wanting to become interested in analytics, the ability to predict the future is pretty cool. So that's kind of how I got interested in healthcare and then got interested in kind of the statistics machine learning area. And then um, can't remember the last part of your question. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, um, I, I was uh, saying that how does your work uh, address sort of the industry challenges yes. on, a, on a broader scale? Yeah, yeah. So let me talk to you about something I've been, my colleagues and I, I don't, I want to give credit to my colleagues and I have been working on, I've been working on this at several different jobs. So we have a problem in, in healthcare. And so we want to be able to predict things accurately. We want to be able to put in, in machine learning models, do that really well. They're really good at predicting things. What they're bad at is explaining why this prediction is the way it is. And, you know, if I'm a stock market, if I'm in the stock market and I'm just trying to predict whether or not I'm going to make money, I don't care how I'm how this is working. I don't care how this model works. I just care that I'm making money. 
in healthcare, we care about why the models are doing what they're doing. What's what factors are contributing to that? That is just as important as the accuracy of the model. And so up until a couple of years ago, this was really, really difficult. We had things like feature importance that could say um, which features had the most impact on, let's say, uh, emergency visits. It would say maybe something like if you had um, you were diagnosed with depression or things like that, but it wouldn't tell you in an interpretable fashion uh, what the most important, you know, uh, how, how, how big of an impact that was and in which direction. With um, explain with what it's called as explainable artificial intelligence, what that's able to do is tell you the impact and the direction, and it can not only tell you that at the aggregate level, but what's really cool is it can tell you that at the individual level. So that helps with things like personalized medicine. So we can look at each individual and their prediction for an ED visit and see what's driving that individual. Because for someone, you know, for one person it might be. Uh, their mental health diagnosis for other people might be the cholesterol. That might be what's what's driving them. Everyone's going to be different. So we can look at it at different levels and get that personalized approach. And I think that's something that um, I haven't seen as much. A couple companies are doing it. We're one of them um, that are starting to that are starting to do this. Um, but I haven't seen a lot of it. And I think it's something that, um, uh, like I said, my colleagues and I, and we've been really trying to push because we get so much value from this ability now to not just predict things accurately, but to explain them. I love it. I absolutely. No, that's fantastic. And thank you for sharing what, you know, drove you and, you know, why you do what you do. And of course, how that is helping in, in overcoming some of the challenges in the healthcare industry. And the way you describe it is also, you know, makes um, lots of sense because um, I think specifically in healthcare, it needs to be explained, um, you know, how that decision is coming up and, you know, yeah. why a certain thing is a, is the way. But by definition, you know, in, in AI, it is not supposed to explain the logic or not have a formula, but just, you know, give you that uh, prediction. So it, it makes uh, total sense. And I love that concept of Ex explainable AI as well. I've never heard of it before, um, but I think um, I can see why in healthcare that could be something super important, uh, you know, uh, for, for us to know. Now, um, for some of your work, does that allow um, providers to make better decisions with the patients or is it more towards, you know, the administrative side and efficiency and insurance claims can you maybe, you know, throw some color uh, into that and and tell me like, yeah. where is majority of your work? I've we've had with this concept, we've had more buy-in at the administration level. It's a little easier for them to understand. The clinicians are still a little worried. They I think they think that we're trying to do their jobs for them, and um, that's not at all what the idea is. The idea is to help support them because there's just so many. These, particularly in mental and behavioral health, the factors, the, the factors that are driving these diseases are so multifaceted. There's, you know, there's there's hundreds of things that are driving it. So if we can help them identify what maybe are the top five that can, and then and then help them focus on those. We're not telling you what to do, and that's where I think it, we, it can get a little too far. I think if I, I would get a little worried if we start getting into the realm of you should do exactly this for that. It, maybe we'll get there someday. But what I'm advocating for is 
these are the things that the model, the data says are driving this person to have whatever that bad outcome is. And then they can start to focus their efforts on those couple of things and better use their resources. So I think it's going to take some more convincing um, at the provider level, but at the administrative level, they've, they've definitely, um, ha I've had an easier time for buy-in and, and they like kind of the aggregate view as well at the C-suite level. That's, we've had a lot of buy-in there too, where they'll see like, these are the top three things driving revenue or um, we do per member per month costs. So, you know, what's driving costs and things like that. Um, they're really interested in those two, but I I know I'm really interested in that individual level and helping providers. But we'll hopefully get there at some point. But this is very new, so I understand. Yeah, yeah, I think the aiding part definitely we we we're ready for. I think um, it's going to be interesting to see how if it how AI chatbots work with with mental, like basically doing a therapist job. Um, I think it could do some simple triaging, like some simple, you know, are you suicidal? Are you having a panic attack? These sorts of things. And then maybe it can triage a little better and help at some point. Um, but I think we're still probably a little bit away from the full therapist. Um, but I think it definitely can help triage. And also like thinking about like when, when I, when I use Gen AI for coding and things like I'll type in what I want to do and it'll give me some options and some good code. I think at some point they'll be able to type things in like, I've got a patient doing this, um, have, having this, what do you think? And it'll give you some ideas, but you still have that expert. Like I can always go in and test and be like, no, that's not quite what I, you know, that's not what I wanted. I think having that interaction is going to be really important with that expertise because they'll be able to make the most use of it. Like for me, when it comes to Gen AI is really good at, at writing Python code. So it's just like, I don't really need to be good at writing Python code anymore. I just need to know the problems that I need to solve. And I know I need to know enough to be able to integrate it and run it successfully. And I think that's probably the next stage before we jump to like full automation. The next stage is being able to better integrate and basically make therapist job and other folks jobs like, like it's done with my job, a heck of a lot easier and a heck of a lot faster. Yeah. No, and um, I think you have a point. It may be uh, still a way that full integrated experience, yeah. but you know, at times I also think about that it may not be that far off because, yeah. like, I used to use BetterHelp, and it was so helpful. Yeah, like, it's obviously you expressing, and then what would my therapist do? She would just give me a few exercises yeah. to really. Uh, yeah. practice, um, yep. you know, certain things that I may be lacking. And yep. and I think those types of exercises yeah. could be gamified. It could yep. be that entire mobile app experience. So it may not be as far. And, and that's my yeah. hope that, you know, yeah. there could be some progress in, in, in that area for sure. That makes a lot of sense. The, uh, the, the giving of tips and tools. Um, I think it can do a really good job at that. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Now, um, shifting gears here, yeah. can you give me a few examples? I know that some of our community just really, um, you know, gets it when there are some examples. So if you can share like an example of how your agile approach and your cross-functional teams have impacted, you know, healthcare operations and maybe even outcomes, but I think the operations and the efficiency is what you might be focusing on first. So can you give me some example? Yeah, it's a simple example. It's nothing fancy, but I worked at a company. And it, this kind of goes to another theme that I might touch on later, if not. But healthcare is always, when it comes to tech, five to six years behind at least. 
So at this company I was working at, this was a while ago. This was like 2017. I don't know. It was a long time ago. Um, we were still, we were tracking um, patients um, for evaluation programs. I forget. They were in, this was in behavioral mental health. They were in different programs. We were tracking their data, tracking them over time. We had to collect data and that had a pre before they started the program and then after. Um, and we would do this all in Excel spreadsheets. It was it was an absolute mess trying to figure out um, who we contacted and things like that. And um, I had just I had just gotten like my Scrum certification and had kind of understood the, the process. And I said, okay, this is like my first big project that we can actually do. This is something that the entire organization they're all using these individual spreadsheets, and it's an absolute mess, killing time, so many errors. I was like, let's just put together a little. SQL, you know, access SQL database. And so I took everyone together. I got all the stakeholders together, got everyone together. And I said, here's the problem. Here's some of the steps to break it down. And I identified who I needed. So I knew there were certain people who were good, um, you know, good programmers and good coders. So I had them to help with some of that. I knew I had people who knew the Excel sheets in and out. So I had them tell us basically the requirements. Like, what do, you, what is, what do these spreadsheets do? What are the problems? What can we do to solve it? So we got everyone together. I put together a, a board. You know, we, we put our backlog together. And I did the first iteration of the, the little access uh, database. Not, nothing, nothing spectacular, but uh, we went through and, and tested it and iterated a few times. And we found that it basically did what we wanted. And not only could we use it, but other people could use it as well. They could, they could use different versions of it. Um, and so after... Um, I think I was able to, the thing I was really proud of is I was able to phase myself out of the project. I was on it at the beginning. So we got like, basically we got to the MVP process and it worked. And then I was able to phase out. And then the other team, the whole team just basically took it over. And long after I was gone, they were still using this, this process to be able to track and implement data. So that was a real success, really cut down on errors, cut down on, we were able to have you know, five or six people working on it at the same time, um, cleaning it up and using that agile process. We got it. We got that MVP within, I think, like two or three weeks tops. Um, and they were able to get that out there and, and make the shift. Um, and I actually wasn't even on when they did the full shift. I remember hearing about it and and every I think there was we went pretty smoothly when they did the they did like a hard shift of we're going to turn we're going to turn off the Excel sheets and turn on this and it seemed to work pretty well, but at that point, I was actually off the program. So you can see how bringing that team together, finding the right expertise, um, at some point, you may not even need yourself on that project anymore. And that and that's the idea is that you've got so many good, talented people around you working with that, that you become at some point obsolete so you can work on other things. Love it. No, absolutely. I think that's the right way. You, you know, take a problem and then, you know, try to get a team aligned that has a cadence and then just let them continue to evolve that product. And that goes back to the you know, basic uh, principles of agile approach and working with a lot of the cross-functional teams. You know, and, and I feel like at times, some of these examples cut across different verticals. So it's uh, super interesting and it's all about you know, that big data. So yeah. speaking of, in the age of big data, how are analytics and these advanced tools that have now become available, transforming like healthcare decision-making and patient outcomes. Yeah, yeah. I've talked a little bit about explainable AI. So that's one way. That's a big that's a big shift and I think a big change that can happen. The other way that we've been really exploring and I've been looking at recently is uh, I think Amazon coined this term, uh, Gen, Gen BI. 
So the idea is that um, you're able to uh, upload a data set or take it from a data lake or wherever it is. And you can prompt it for a question. And in and, and, uh, ChatGPT, at least the, the, the four version is able to do this. You can, you can upload your data set, ask it a question. For example, if I have a healthcare data set and I want to know what's the average age by blood type, I don't know, any question, and give me a plot. Um, the idea is that you can use that to be able to, to show those results. And this is really important because what I've seen in talking with other um, front-end developers is healthcare folks um, really struggle with with even ta with Tableau, Power BI, and all those different apps to be able to find exactly what they want. Generally, they want like three or four different questions, and they want to be able to know what are my patients by this year and this and and just get, we we really struggled at my last company just getting people to go to like they didn't even know where Power BI was. Um, they're like, where is it? I don't know how to use this. I don't want to watch a training. I don't want to do this. I just need to know these three things. And so what we're really trying to do is to be able to give them that easy, use, easy user interface like you see on ChatGPT where you just type in, here's your question. So we're building things that um, when we have demos now where you can just, it gives you like a, uh, a sample of the day, like the first five rows and you can see the columns. So you can go through and be like, oh, I want to ask this question or that question. And that's going to be helping um, bring in a lot more folks who are scared of data. And once they get the handle of that, maybe they'll be able to go over to some of the custom, um, the custom tables and the custom reports that have the more you know standardized questions and and, and, quest and uh, KPIs that the whole company's tracking. But this is a way for them to get their hands on the data, ask the questions they want in a safe way, in a way that's easy easy for them to inter uh, interface. Now. I will say I haven't seen anyone doing this very well yet. Um, Microsoft has a fancy video. AWS has a fancy video, and we're testing out their, I think it's called QuickSight Q or Topics. It's not there yet. It's not ready for production. It still struggles. Um, there are some companies out there. We're talking with some of them, and we've built our own, um, but it's still... Uh, we're still a little bit of ways away from getting into where we want to feel comfortable, um, but... I think that's a big shift for the healthcare field, at least that I'm in, um, the areas that I'm in with with healthcare and, and uh, analytics. Yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. So, generative BI, I mean, that's uh, that's amazing, and I think the way that generative AI uses AI to, um, or you know, large language models to. Um, you know, reference the data that it's trained on and give you, uh, you know, something that's generative, that's, you know, created. So this in this scenario, you just point it to a bunch of data and ask any questions about that data. Um, that's, uh, that's super awesome. And I think, you know, what I look forward to is maybe even by just giving data and not even asking any questions, it just um, you know, the question is like, hey, what are the anomalies or what what do you think I should know? And it just automatically says, OK, well, you need to definitely look at this because there is a kink here or, you know, yeah. there is, you know, some of this going on. So not even ask any question. And then it just gives you those business intelligence answers as yeah. such. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that that can be unique for any data. And, yeah. you know, of course, super important for healthcare too. Yeah. You, you could probably do that now. Um, you could probably upload a data set and just ask it, what are the trends? Or you could build a custom 
like what we've done, kind of build our own custom LLM and then train it in the background to be like, hey, um, just uh, answer these questions automatically whenever you see a data set. And usually the way it works, it's not super magical. Basically what it does is it um, looks at your question. It's really good at generating code. So it generates either Python or SQL code, whatever it is, um, and then executes that code. So it's not super, you know, it is difficult. Obviously it's doing a lot of work, but it's not, um, you know, that's kind of that's kind of the magic behind it. That's what it's doing. Love it. That's fantastic. Like navigating stakeholder engagement across diverse departments, how do you ensure alignment of data science initiatives with the varying needs of operations and compliance and finance and clinical and IT? Yeah. How do you how do you manage that delicate balance? Yeah, I think well, first you have to you have to understand who owns what data source. I learned this younger uh, early in my career. Um, just because I have access to a data source doesn't mean that I should be analyzing it. One from security purposes, because that may not there may be data that I shouldn't be accessing for whatever reason. And two, sometimes people uh, it's their data, so they don't like you messing around with it. Um, so that's something for young data scientists, uh, make sure that um, who you know who the owner is of the data and that they're okay with you messing around with it. Um, so that's a big one is understanding who owns it so you don't step on any toes. Um, being able to integrate it correctly, like so making sure, this is more of a technical thing, but like sometimes there's like no IDs, so it's like I can't bring this stuff together. Um, so even if people wanted me to analyze it, I couldn't. Um, but as far as prioritizing... Um, it comes down to, I think two things is like how much value and in, in value could be, you know, it generally comes down to like revenue or patient outcomes, one of the two. So how, how is it going to help our patients get better, which usually translate into, into more revenue anyways. Um, so trying that it comes down to those two things. Um, and then also, um, how easy is it going to be to do? So it's, you know, if you take it on a scale of those two things and kind of rate it on those two, if it's really high value, but impossible to do, we might pick something else that maybe it's less value, but this is like something we could get done in two weeks. So like, like, let's chat, let's take that on and do that. What can we get and what can we turn into a product the easiest? So those are the things that I generally look at and try to rate it on those two areas, um, and try to find the one that maximizes both. Um, and just pick, you know, two to three at a time. If you try to do everything, then nothing gets done. So picking the two or three that maximize those, making sure you're communicating and getting, pro if you're, you have to be getting demos and products out. If you're just telling people, you know, this is what we did this week or whatever, they want to see results. So you have to continuously show people stuff, even if it's not fully done. If you're continuously showing them results and progress, uh, people will be much happier with you. <laughs> Uh, and no, I absolutely again. agree. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to the agile principles, right? At yeah, the end of the sprint, exactly. show me something that's yeah. workable. Like exactly. if you're trying to build a car, you know, show me two tires yeah. you know, stuck with a, a rod that actually yeah. moved yep. or, you know, something like that. So yeah. it's, uh, I think I, I agree with you. And that goes back to the fundamentals. Now, how do um, generative AI and large language models uh play a role in shaping actionable insights and improving communication within the healthcare industry, you know, keeping what you just mentioned in mind. Yeah, yeah. So I think one one area is like the Gen BI where it can analyze the data for you. 
The other one where I'm curious to see where it goes, and we've touched on this a little bit, but Google, like Google has new LLMs. One of them is called uh, MedPalm. And in theory, you're supposed to be able to ask it like healthcare questions and it could give you answers to that. And I think that goes back to what we talked about with the mental health example of, I think that can be really helpful for doctors who know generally, you know, how to interact with it, what the right answers should look like. But sometimes it's just faster to ask it as opposed to, I know, like for, there's a lot of things in Python code that like, I, I kind of remember, but I just don't remember the second or like, if I, if I looked it up, I could figure it out really quick and I would know what the right answer is, but it's just faster to have it do it for me. So I think in that sense, like the way I use it for programming, again, I think doctors could use it to this patient is exhibiting these systems, this, these symptoms, they're this old, they have this, you could upload their, um, potentially their, uh, electronic medical uh, history and it could give you that and, and you could tell them why it's in today. And then you can also, you know, probe it and ask questions and come up with your own analysis and interpretation. Um, so I think it can really help with that on a less exciting note. I've talked a lot of doctor friends that I have say it helps them write the generic notes that are the same almost for every single page. There's like certain things that they have to do every single time for every single patient, no matter what. And it has to be in a certain format. And so it's just helping a lot with clerical work and letting them spend more time with patients. So I think those are the two areas that I really see it outside of what I've already talked about. Yeah, yeah. No, and definitely the the former one is the sexier one. And this is yeah. where we need, you know, a lot more progress instead yeah. of just, you know, uh, basic notes, which, you know, of course helps yeah. uh, preserve time and makes doctors more efficient so they can serve more patients. Uh, you know, but at the same time, I think uh, what we want to do is breakthrough yeah. and that decision making on the clinical side of things as well, how generative AI can come. Yeah, Google, I think, has, um, uh, you know, Galaxy as well um, oh, as, as one of uh, the ones I, I heard, the large language model. But a lot of these companies are, um, you know, creating their own as well. As you mentioned, that Media Analytics also has, uh, you know, one, maybe an open source that's now, um, you know, brought in-house and worked on. Now, and, and there's also all these different cloud platforms. So like Azure, AWS, SageMaker. How do you anticipate the role of cloud computing evolving in healthcare data analytics and management as such? Yeah, I it, and I think I'll speak particularly to the data science field because that's where I'm in. But it's it's made a world of difference in being able to train large models. So before... Um, it could, you know, it would be impossible on my little, on my little MacBook to, to train a model with more than a couple, you know, may, maybe I could get 10,000 patients, but that, that would, that would take maybe a day or two. Like this was my little MacBook. Now we're able to choose and scale up different computing power. So that's just like how much power, you know, the computer uses, how, you know, it, it makes it go faster. Basically it makes these, makes these calculations go faster. So now, you know, if we want to analyze 10 million patients, we can do it in 10 minutes. Now it's going to cost a, a fair amount, but we can do it. So we have the ability to be able to scale up and down these resources to be able to train these large models. Um, now with Gen AI, it's still really, really, really expensive to train your own model. I think at some point we'll get it down to cheaper, but at least for the standard kind of tabular data right now, um, you can kind of scale those up and down and that really helps. I think... It's also helping um, 
being able to um, have the same infrastructure as opposed to having different. So like for people who are coming and going in different jobs or moving throughout different healthcare fields, like um, you basically have AWS, Google and um, Azure. So it's much easier um, to be able to, if I've used AWS before to switch over to another AWS company and it makes it a lot easier um, because it's kind of the same system, same setup. So that's been really helpful. I will say that the data science, there are still a lot of kinks to work out. So I've worked with Azure and AWS um, and it, it there are still a lot of issues um, because those are some of their newer platforms and newer um, areas that things like if I want to create a Docker file, it's just kind of, it's really difficult. It's really messy. And I want to be able to do that to create a virtual environment so that basically what I want to do is I want to be able to create a, a secure and uh, a unique environment that I can install different packages and versions because sometimes different packages, different versions is collide and they don't work. So it's a mess. So being able to do some of the things that uh, good programming, good programming practices are still not quite there yet. Um, so I think that's something that can that they still need to work on and working out some of those areas where um, we can do all the things that we're used to doing on our local computers within the cloud. Um, and I know there's still also security concerns. That's not an expert area of mine, but I know that's something that with healthcare data, like it, it, it's very, it's it's always something in the back of our mind of, you know, how much data we're using, what kind of data is it PHI? Um, and it's nice to have it in the cloud, but then that also exposes it as well. Whereas if it's on my local computer, it's harder to hack into. So Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. And I think that's uh, a challenge in healthcare, of course, uh, yeah. the data needs to be secured. But I feel like that that you know over um, a number of years, I've I've seen that um, the confidence being built yeah. across various industries because yeah. even outside of healthcare, people are very possessive at times yeah. about their data. And um, I remember when um, CIA, I think, or FBI, I forget which one of these two but took um, AWS, they were like, oh, if CIA can trust AWS, yeah. then surely, yeah. you know, we can as well, like exactly. with our data too. But I think yeah. it's specifically, uh, you know, a, a bigger deal for healthcare and yeah. the way that it's evolving in the last few years and, yeah. you know, the the new, the new machines with the new, uh, you know, cards uh, from NVIDIA, it's just yeah. mind boggling. Like, and the rate at which it is changing you know, definitely seems like it's it's making it possible for us to run more and more complicated, complex yeah. compute type uh, problems uh, to be solved. So really looking forward to that. Well, good. Um, so can you highlight maybe then a, a project in healthcare data that you particularly might be proud of and that, you know, hopefully showcases some positive impact on the delivery of healthcare services or outcomes for patients? Yeah. So during COVID, um, we were tapped, basically we, you know, like everybody else, everything just shut down and, and everyone got sent home. And I was working at a behavioral mental health organization and they wanted to be able to, uh, basically they wanted to make sure because everything was telemed now, they wanted to evaluate whether or not we were providing at least as good of care before the pandemic. It's fine if it's not better, like, because because no one was ready for this. So it's like, we just want to make sure patients aren't getting worse. We wish they would get better. But, you know, this is just the way it is. And we're just we just want to make sure everyone's doing OK. So 
um, we were able to pretty quickly get access to EHR data and particularly uh, what are called PHQ-9 scores. So those are basically patient questionnaires. And um, next time you go to your primary care uh, visit, you'll probably be asked these questions. They're, it's the depression screener because now I believe it's pretty standard um, with everyone doing that. Nine questions um, asked about that. So we wanted to see pre and post um, COVID because um, this was um, Herbert or pre-COVID and then during COVID. Um, were those PHQ-9 scores any different while controlling for a lot of different factors. So obviously we couldn't do a, a randomized controlled trial because COVID happened and we couldn't uh, separate people. Everyone was automatically in telemed. Um, but we did have a natural experiment because, you know, it stopped pretty quickly. Everyone started doing telemed pretty quickly. So we were able to take that pre and post um, really close to the, you know, um, before the pandemic and after and control for things like age, gender, income and a couple of other factors and use some techniques um, called one of them is called uh, inverse probability weighting. But basically what that does is it helps you to be able to account and wait for those differences because, you know, there might have been, I don't know, more younger, older people um, coming in before than after. So we wanted to basically help even the data out for the factors that we had data on. Now, there were factors we didn't have data on. We couldn't control for those. And that's just something we had to live with. And we used um, particular technique um, with the Bayesian analysis. And what we were able to do was to be able to say with, you know, 95% confidence that these two um, PHQ-9 scores weren't different. Um, and so we were able to run that, do that pretty quickly. And we were able to look at it and look at that over time, look at that over some time and be able to say there was no statistically significant difference. These two were, were um, basically the same. And uh, they were basically the same. So we were able to say at the end of the day that uh, patients uh, before COVID and during COVID, their PHQ-9 scores uh, weren't significantly different. And that was really big because now that company has done, has stuck with telemed. I know a lot of companies are kind of going back and shifting, but they have now been able to go forward and continue telemed for those who want to do it. Now we don't, we don't, we don't want to do full telemed there because they do have a lot of patients who are very low income, may not have access to the tools that they need, but they wanted to continue to expand that program for patients who were really interested in doing that. So that made a, had a huge operational decision um, and helped them out with that. So, yeah. Okay. Well, wow. Thank you for sharing that. No, that's uh, that's fantastic. I think, uh, you know, these are the kinds of projects and the impact that you know helps us to find that meaning and continue to make progress and grow as an individual as well so thank you for sharing that that's uh that's super helpful now can you explain the significance of causal inference in um deriving meaningful insights from healthcare data and are there any specific challenges you encounter in its application yeah. So so the project that I was talking about was one a little bit ago was one application of it. And so a lot of the problems you're going to find are um, we, you know, we're, we're not in we're not pharmaceutical. Well, some of us are in healthcare pharmaceutical. For those of us who are in pharmaceuticals, you know, we're not running clinical trials. They're really expensive. They take a long time. Um, and so we're generally trying to make decisions a little faster with with a little bit more window of error. 
And so we can use um, causal inference. Sometimes they're called quasi-experimental designs. Basically, it's when we don't have a control group. We didn't randomly assign people. So what do we want to do? Basically, we want to account and try to control for everything that we know. So anything we have data on. So there's different methods. So the method I used before was I used kind of a regular statistical model, linear regression. Um, and what we're doing now is we're using machine learning to be able to run those same models. But with machine learning, we're now able to include not just a handful of variables, because in the other model, maybe you can include gender, age, um, income, and maybe four or five other ones before the model starts to break down. With machine learning, you can include hundreds you know, of, of different features to be able to basically control for everything that you can think of. And so that's the kind of models that we're using now. So we're getting much, much better estimates of what those differences are because we're able to control for so many more things and able to include a lot more data. Um, so that's really where causal inference and machine learning kind of connect and to be able to make those, make those business decisions of evaluating different programs, um, evaluating interventions um, or um, different marketing strategies, whatever it is for your healthcare company you can start to evaluate those without necessarily running a clinical, you know, randomized trial um, and get some insights onto whether or not your, whatever it is you're trying to do has the impact you're, you, you hope for. Got it. Got it. Looks like it's pretty significant then, um, you know, in the industry. Um, very good. Now, drawing from your experience, what emerging trends that we've talked about, you know, during this wonderful conversation or you know some topics in health tech community that you feel like you're most excited about in the coming years, and what impact do you foresee uh, these having on the industry? Yeah, it's probably got. I've talked about this a lot, but got to be Gen BI. I know this is the this is. I work. I've worked in the business intelligence the departments of the company, so I, I'm a little biased because I've worked in the, that department in the last three years. But That's just, what you're most excited about, man. Yeah. Gen BI. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Number two, three, and four, maybe. Number two, um, probably the chat, the explainable artificial intelligence, and seeing that at the provider, like the actual provider level, and seeing that have the impact. Um, that would be number two. A wild card that I haven't talked about that I think that I think is interesting is potentially uh, virtual reality for training for. Um, providers. I just think it's, I'm someone who has to learn by doing. And if you think about, um, uh, particularly like people who are, you know, emergency doctors or other surgeons, like you can't really learn by doing cause that's dangerous. Um, so, you know, you have, they can run simulations and things like that where they have, you know, actors and things like that, but it's really hard for them to get training. So, um, I would like to think, um, that hopefully VR can help them get some of that extra practice. I don't think it'll be perfect. Um, I play tennis. So like I think of it as like hitting on a ball machine. It's like, that's good. And you can work, particularly if you want to work on something, like I want to work on my backhand today and you really want to drive that in. It's good for that. It's not the same as being in a match, but it's still like I get a chance to actually get a feel for it and hit there. And it really helps you prepare for those outcomes. So that's kind of another area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course the muscle memory yeah. is extremely important. No, and uh, th this is uh, fascinating because I never thought of it this way. But how would it work? Like you would have maybe some gooey material and then you put those glasses and then whatever changes you make, those 
are interpreted and then accordingly you're able to see it. Maybe there are different levels of, um, you know, tensile strength, you know, to depict different parts of the body. I mean, again, maybe we're getting too ahead. Yeah, I can't tell you for sure. I mean, I've had ones where you could put on gloves and they can kind of feel with that. You could do that. You could do something like that. But yeah, um, I'm not entirely sure. But that's like I said, it's a little bit of a while because something that I've thought about and I was like, because I, 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 I play tennis with a lot of emergency doctors. So it's like something I was like, man, and they're talking about a, a, a case that they had never seen before. And I'm like, man, that sounds really hard. If I had a problem I'd never seen before, I'd want to Google it and probably ask ChatGPT and work with it a little bit. I was like, that's tough. It's too bad they don't have a opportunity to practice different things more. Um, so yeah, I'm not entirely sure how you know it's being implemented. I'm sure there's some companies out there, but it's something that I think um, would be really cool to see and excited to see. Hopefully that that help a lot of physicians um, be able to get that extra practice in. Absolutely, absolutely, and. And I think something a little bit more basic where you have, you know, the skeleton and being able yeah. to take that apart and, you know, yeah. do all of that in, in uh, augmented reality. Um, exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah. Makes, you know, could be more immediate too. that. That makes total sense. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for your time today. I had uh, such a fantastic time speaking with you and hearing some of the wonderful insights in our industry. Any final message for the healthcare community before we wrap up this podcast? Yeah, I think it's, as we've talked about a lot of really cool things and a lot of cutting edge things, but I, I say I, because I'm one of them, uh, your data scientists can't do anything without good data. And again, that kind of goes back, you know, I'll, I'll brag about Medi Analytics a little bit. That kind of goes back to what we do at our core is to make sure that the companies have good, accurate data because he you can throw any any fancy model at it and if you don't understand your data I, I can't help you we can't we can't help you if we don't if you don't have good data so that's really the key piece is get your good data first and then do your data science later love it love it amen to good data i think uh, that's going to be critical well fantastic again thank you so much uh, dr hanover it was really wonderful speaking with you and i'm sure that our community is going to get tons of benefit from this talk and Hopefully we could uh, do do something like this again. But uh, until next time, have a good one and goodbye. Yeah, I really appreciate the time. And yeah, uh, thank you very much. And looking forward, looking forward to meeting again. Yep. Bye. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye.